And Lord, your word tells us that the good that you're working is for the purposes of our salvation, our sanctification, and our service. And so, Lord, we just offer ourselves to you and just pray once again that you would fill us, that you would bless us for coming here. Teach us and instruct us, God, so that the end result that we would truly be a church that acts like acts. And so, God, we just thank you for giving us this morning. I pray, Father, that we be attentive to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn and greet your neighbors? Greetings. How do you say greetings in Hebrew? Oh, shalom. Yeah, that's true. Well, I already knew that. <laughs> Man. Anybody see Jim and Dee today? Hi, Bertie. How are you? Hi, Marie. Hello, everybody. Well, let's just get this out of the way, okay? Everybody good? Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Again, if you arrived here today without a Bible, we'd like for you to follow along, and there should be one in front of you underneath the seat. If not, raise your hands, and the ushers will bring one to you. Does anybody need a Bible? Everybody's up. There's one up here. Um, as you're turning there, I have mentioned, made mention of this before. We prayed for it a month or so ago. We have gotten, received an offer from our landlord. Um, our lease at this building is due. It is up at the end of April. Uh, currently, we are paying 64 cents a square foot. We have 14,000 square feet here, and so our monthly lease and monthly rent is $10,700. That's what I always say every time I open up the bill. Um, they are increasing it. We live in the age of Amazon where warehouse space is a premium. We live in Ontario near the airport and our rent is going to be increased uh, for the next period by about 25% really. And so our rent is going to be going up from 64 cents a square foot up to uh, $0.86 cents a square foot, which will bring it up to $13,600 a month. And so am I asking for you to give more money? No, what I'm asking for you to do, if this is your church, is to pray. Is to pray for God's will and what God desires in it. Uh, God provides, where God guides, God provides, and we just want to make sure that we're in God's will. If it's God's will that we sign the lease for three more years, then God is going to provide every penny because God always has provided every penny. Our God is just so good. Um, I have looked around. Some people have made comments and whatever. I've had about three different real estate people looking around. It's hard for a church because you can have a 10,000-square-foot building and only like 12 parking places uh, because most of it's warehouses, and the parking obviously is the biggest part of a church. Um, in years past, and this year as well, a lot of people don't want to lease to a church. And the reason being is, is because churches are notoriously poor tenants. They don't fulfill their lease, and they don't make their payments. They are not churches that act like acts. And so that's very unfortunate, and, um, you know, just churches that do will suffer because of it. But right now, God's got us here, and if God uh, keeps us here, then we'll just continue to push forward in what God has called us to do. And as I said, God has always provided, so it's all I'm asking is that you would just continue to, to pray. Um, somebody had asked me about question and answer last time we did it, which is about a month and a half ago. We pretty much finished all the questions that I had received, and they asked if I was going to do it anymore, and I have no plans because I have no questions. Um, if I get questions, then yes. But if you have any questions, you can write them on the prayer request section of the bulletin and put it in the agape box. And if I just get one or two, I'll probably answer them at the beginning of service, kind of like what I'm doing now as we get ready to start our service. Um, so if you have anything that you always just wondered, keep it biblical. You can bleed off into the political if you want and how things apply to current events. But, um, you know, I can't explain to you in detail the Pelagrum theory or theory of, you know, relatively, relatively. <laughs> I can't even say it. <laughs> um, but keep it biblical and we should be good. Let's all stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in Acts chapter 20, at least for a portion of our time. Verse 17. 
from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, this is the Apostle Paul, and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, and what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house." testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Father, we see this emotional get-together that Paul had with these people that he had been ministering to. And what we're seeing here is, is the love that is expressed from the minister to the ministered. And I just pray, Lord, that we would understand, just as Paul had those people within his heart, that, Lord, we would consider people not just the act of doing ministry, but the target of the ministry, which is the saving of souls. And so once again, we just pray for our time here this morning that you would bless it and use it for your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. We'll go ahead and be seated. This is the seventh in this series of a church that acts like acts, and I probably just have one more that we'll be doing, and then we'll get into Second John. But you look at that term, and church that acts like acts, kind of an oxymoron, because if a church isn't acting like acts, is it really a church? We live a life of a series of oxymorons. Most of you went out to a car that was parked in a driveway, and then you started that car, and then you drove on a street that could be called the parkway. On the way over here, I saw a sign that says, warning, sharp curve. It wasn't very sharp. It wasn't very curvaceous either. What t- when do you go to work? You go to work at rush hour. And what do you do? You sit on the freeway, and you move absolutely nowhere. I saw a commercial on TV the other day. They wanted my scrap gold. (laughs) I've got my regular gold, and then I have my gold over here that's just scrap. I was walking down the street, and a guy approached me and asked me if I had any spare change. And I told him I've never had spare money in all of my life. And then I was watching something for this product, and they said it was developed by artificial intelligence. What's artificial intelligence? Well, they said it was a machine, and I I didn't really understand what they were talking about, but I know some humans that have artificial intelligence. It's called stupidity. I'm not supposed to say stupid from the pulpit, but speaking of stupid, did you see the uh, election results from yesterday in Nevada? Bernie Sanders, the man who promises everything and can afford absolutely nothing. And along the serious line, what is it that he is promising? I mean, I know all of the free stuff, but some of the stuff is unbiblical stuff. He even stated it, that he is going to fully fund planned parenthood. He's going to crank back up the abortion machine. He has stated that. He has stated arrogantly and boldly. Consider these things as you're hearing these things from candidates. I don't care if you're Democrat, Republican, or whatever. Vote according to the Bible. And we are told, definitely, in the book of Jeremiah, God said, before you were born, I knew you. I formed you in the womb. That tells me that that baby in the womb is a person, is a living, functioning human being. And so you've got to consider these things. God shed thy grace upon thee. Was God going to be gracious towards us if we, if we boldly insult him to his face? And so all of these things we really do need to consider because if we elect the wrong person, we'll be feeling the burn for quite a few years. And so getting off that soapbox and coming to the Bible... A church that acts like church. So far, what we have seen is a church that acts like acts will be evangelical. It will wait upon the Lord. It is filled with the Holy Spirit. 
It is moving and ministering. It is encouraging to the discouraged. It hates hypocrisy. It multiplies ministry. It witnesses as the world harasses, is just like you. It has a call, just like Paul, has a flow of fresh faith, is prepared to preach, and a church that acts like Acts instigates real revival. We've seen those concepts, those titles, in the past, but now we're looking at the 14th one today. A church that acts like Acts, it embraces God's logo of love. It embraces the cross and the reality of the cross, and that's what we saw here. Apostle Paul's on his way to Jerusalem. As he's on his way to Jerusalem, he stops in, in, in western Turkey along the coastline, Ephesus, and he, he goes a little bit south of that, and he gathers together these leaders, the leaders of the churches that have been planted, these people who are very dear to his heart, and his idea is he wants to encourage them. He wants to encourage them, he wants to strengthen them, because he knows that these are the future church, members, leaders of the future church, and he's probably not, I don't know if he understood the magnitude of the epistles that he had written but still he knew that his time was short he seemed to know these things but he wanted these people to be faithful in what God had called them to do and the heart that he had for them and the people that they represent he wanted them to have a heart for the people also if the person behind the pulpit doesn't have a heart for the people then he's just taken up space we have to have that heart and we have to have that care Am I going to come over to each and every house and hang out with you and help you with you? No, I can't do all of that, but I do pray for you. I have a list on my desk. I pray every, every single day at lunchtime. I need to care for you in the devotions and the studies that I put together, the devotions I write, the studies I put together to encourage you in your Christian walk. And that's the, just simply the example. That, that's the minimum of what we should be doing. And it's not just me to you. Then it needs to be you to, to other people. And so God's logo of love is the cross as Jesus hung upon the cross and displayed the love of God to all of humanity. So this dynamic of God's church is seen in the members who understand the magnitude for the need of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, and the power of the gospel. And really what we have here is, is a few points that I want to look at. Paul, what he's having is, he's having a pastor's conference, if you will. And so these are the things that Paul thinks it's important to encourage these people so that they would continue to move forward because he realizes, as all pastors need to do, they're interchangeable, they're disposable. Because one day, I pray that Calvary Chapel, Ontario continues to go on until the Lord comes back, but I'm not necessarily going to be here. One day you'll read in the newspaper, Pastor Mike died, we'll put it in the bulletin for you, Pastor Mike died. Because Pastor Mike's going to die one day. I don't know when that is going to be. Maybe prophetic. Maybe it'll be tomorrow. But maybe it won't be for another 10, 15, 20 years. Who knows? Nobody knows. But the thing about it is, is that the person behind the pulpit is to be transparent, pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And so first point here is Paul says when it comes to the gospel especially the leader in the gospel look over at verse 26 therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men must be innocent 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 before God not guilty of falling down on the job not guilty of not fulfilling the ministry that was given but Paul understands I did what God has called me to do and so I'm innocent. I, I, I told you guys the gospel. What you do with the gospel, that's up to you. And, and that should be a, a contentment that you have as well. I just know that God is telling me to preach the gospel with, with so-and-so. Pastor Mike, I, I preached the gospel to them, and they just kind of blew me off, and they just kind of went away. That's okay. You did what you were supposed to do. Never stop doing what you're supposed to do because as far as the gospel, that's what God will do in their lives. They need to be open to what the Lord has and they're going to have a responsibility before the Lord. The responsibility you have before the Lord is again simply to do what God has called you to do. In 1 Samuel chapter 23, David's hearing about the Philistines and they're attacking this small little town, this little village of Keilah. 
Keilah is very vulnerable and the Philistines are going in there. And so David has this heart to help these people. And so he asked the Lord, should I go there? Because it could be a knee-jerk reaction, but this city, the way it, it sets, there's only a one way in and one way out. It, it's very vulnerable. Once you go in, you can become entrapped in there if there's an enemy that surrounds you. And David's a little concerned about it. And so he, he, he asks God, and God says yes. And he talks to his guys. Guys are a little bit concerned about it. So he once goes back and, and asks God once again. And God says, no, go. Go and deliver them. And so David, he has a freedom in that. Because now what he's doing is, as he's leading these men, he's just going and doing what God has called him to do. And as he's doing what God's called him to do, there's nothing more that is really asked of you. There's never any more that's asked of us. And so, long story short, he goes into that city and, and delivers the people from the Philistines. But he's still got another problem because King Saul's after him. And, and he's kind of concerned about that. And he asks God, um, is Saul going to come here and attack me? Because, again, he's kind of vulnerable at this moment. And God says, yeah, he's, he's going to do it. He says, are, are the men of this town, are they going to deliver me into the hand of King Saul? And God says, yeah, they're, they're, they're going to do it. And so it came time to leave. <laughs> and so Paul did what he was supposed to do, and then he just simply moved on. We are to do what we have been called to do. I am called to raise up a family, called to minister to my wife called to minister to grandchildren, called to minister here at this church, and whoever it is that we come in contact with as we go about our, our lives, going about making disciples. So Paul was able to stand before these people, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Innocent of the blood of all men. The idea here is if they should lose their lives, it's not my fault. To have the blood, your blood upon your own head, that means you're innocent, I mean you're guilty of your own sin and you brought upon yourself whatever the trial was that came upon yourself. To have blood upon your hands, that means you're guilty in somebody else's life, losing their life. But Paul's saying here, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Look at verse 27, this is key, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I taught you all that God had given to me. And I used the Old Testament. I showed how Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Now, obviously, I'm paraphrasing here because he's not saying that, but we see through Paul's ministry, and that's how he moved in the midst of ministry. And so what he has done is he has shown how Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of God's promises, how he died upon the cross for the sins of all of humanity, but even as he died three days later, he rose again from the dead, and now he ascended into heaven. He has sent the Holy Spirit, and through all that, the changed life of the believer, that continues through to even our lives today, we see the reality of the truthfulness of the Word of God. You can hold these things dear in your heart as being truth because they've played out, if you're a born-again believer, in your life and in the lives of others. And so how much more so today as we have more counsel through the New Testament, we're able to show precisely the things that God has done and continues to do. He was innocent in that, had people saved under his ministry People sanctified, or they grew in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, as we even see here now, he is shepherding the next generation. He didn't just leave them in despair. He's prepared them to move forward in all that God has. Secondly, a person who possesses God's logo of love must be diligent. Verse 28, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock amongst whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. To be diligent is to possess a steady, continuous effort. And you do so as you understand that Almighty God died for the people that are in your congregation, and he has made you an under-shepherd of them. You have the precious possession of God. He died for those people again. And so you've got great responsibility. And don't just point at me. Look at yourself, because God, a lot of us here, has given us a spouse, 
has given us children, given us grandchildren, has given us friends, whoever it might be. We all have that same responsibility. We all have that same need to be diligent. And I've seen through diligence salvation come about through somebody who had shared the word and it was rejected, but only to continue to do these things and to see it finally blossom forth in the salvation of a soul. My son, what is he, like 38 or something like that? You're old. My son's 38 years old, and he says for 35 years he's a Christian, and after 35 years he became born again. And that was through diligent prayer. I mean, he did all the Christian thing, because the father was like a pastor, or involved in ministry and leadership and all that stuff, even before pastor. And, and he just kind of did the Christian thing for the majority of his life. Still living a life of the flesh. But then, at that time in 35, God arrested his soul. And he said the things that he'd been taught, they blossom forth in his life. And so we need to continuously be diligent, never giving up. Why must we be so diligent? Because our adversary is diligent. In 1 Peter 5.8, it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Have you ever gone on YouTube and look up lions? I've done so for my grandchildren and watch them. But one of the things that I've seen is these lions, they'll sneak up in the brush. And whatever it might be, usually it's kind of the sick or it's the young. And you have a young water buffalo, one that can even barely walk, very vulnerable at that time, can't run away. And when the lion gets it, you just see the viciousness in that lion that wants to eat. And he knows he's got to kill. And that's what the devil has done and continues to do. And I really believe that that's why he's used as the example here to see that viciousness and that desire to kill and consume. Thirdly, a person who possesses God's logo of love must be prudent. Prudent, wisdom in handling the matters of ministry. Look at verses 29 through 31. For I know this, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from amongst yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Because of this, or therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Why night and day with tears in this warning? Because he's concerned about the flock, but I think it goes maybe even a little bit further than that. Because what did he say? He says, savage wolves will rise up amongst you. And, and who's he talking to? He's talking to the pastors. Some of those pastors are actually wolves in sheep clothing or about to become. And, and he's warning them. And I think part of the reason he's warning them for the, the safety of the flock, but also for the benefit of that particular person, that they wouldn't go down that road, that they wouldn't become contrary to the gospel of God. And he's concerned about their souls and their eternity, that if they would turn and they would go in that direction, that, well, really what it is doing is revealing who they are, but still, it just breaks the Apostles Paul's heart. And so, exercising wisdom in the midst of ministry, why must we be prudent? Because when you are diligent amongst roaring lions, they transfer themselves into wolves in sheep's clothing, and even at times, angels of light. Ah, that, that, that Pat, he's just so good. Well, why is he good? What, is, what does that mean? Well, he, he's, he's kind of funny, and, and look at all the people. Well, an angel of light is going to attract a lot of people. So just because that particular person has a, attracted a lot of people doesn't mean that he's of the Lord. What's that person's character? Where's the integrity of that person? Is it based upon, is it rooted in the word of God? Don't look at the outward expression, uh, expression of, of who a person is trying to project themselves to be but look at who they are through their manner of living and the way that they conduct themselves in the midst of ministry. The Apostle John had a warning as well. We'll be looking at it in a couple of weeks, but again, in 2 John verse 7, there's only one chapter, he says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. 
look to yourselves that we do not lose those things which we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine or proper doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in the evil deeds. And the idea, he who supports that person who is a false teacher will suffer the same repercussions as that false teachers do. So that's why, I'll warn you, just because somebody's on TV doesn't mean that they're a good preacher. Matter of fact, seems like TV, for the most part, there are good pastors on TV, I'm not saying that, but for the most part, it seems like the devil has taken over a lot of that. There's different movements that come out that represent themselves as the church, but are really far from it. We've seen different movements. There's the pop psychology movement, seeker-friendly movement. There was the laughter in the spirit movement, the emerging church movement. Jesus, Jesus wasn't very popular. Matter of fact, we see, if you look at John chapter 6, there was a lot of people following. There's big crowds following, but what did they do when he spoke truth? What did they do? It went away. It wasn't like, hey, Lord, you got to kind of tone it down because, you know, the offering's going to go down and we're not going to be able to support this and the big church thing and all that. Jesus didn't care about that. Jesus cared about the preaching of the truth. Jesus wasn't always popular. He was not seeker-friendly. He told people the hard things. And we can look at the seeker as we should, but for instance, the woman caught in adultery. But also, you need to look at the, the people he had strong words for. He wanted them to get right with him as well. The Pharisees weren't just fodder for the fires of hell. He wanted them to get right also. He was trying to teach them the lessons that he presented to us in the Gospels. And the church is not emerging. The church emerged in Acts chapter 2. The church has emerged, and anything that changes, will we'll change some of the methods that we use with the generations that we're trying to reach. There's no doubt about that. I mean, some people will say, well, back in the Old Testament time, they didn't have guitars, and they, you know, they didn't have drums and all this other stuff. Well, they didn't have sound systems. They didn't have air conditioning. Matter of fact, they didn't really have buildings a lot of the times, and so you just can't go there. You minister society where they're at, but what you use to minister to them, the Word of God, you can't change it, you can't alter it, and you can't water it down. What Jesus did do, well, in Jude 3, Beloved, I write, or beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting to you to contend earnestly for the faith which was delivered once, one time, for all. It was delivered once for everybody. Not just everybody around at that time, but throughout all the generations. Fourthly, a person who possesses God's logo of love must be innocent, diligent, prudent, and consistent. Verse 32. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. Dig in, start doing it, and don't stop until God says to stop. And really, the two things that we really need to develop consistency in, again, not just as a pastor, but just as a, or even as a born-again believer, commending people to God in prayer is be diligent, people who are diligent in prayer. So I'm telling you, you know, letting you know this is your church, this is as much as it is my church and all, and the situation with the rent, we need to pray. Maybe God wants us to go somewhere else. I don't know, we need to pray. And God reveals his will through prayer. If you've got somebody who's unsaved, pray for that person and never stop. You have a child who's kind of whacked and you don't know where he's at, Pray. Continue to pray, and don't stop praying, because if you stop praying, then that means you've surrendered him over to that roaring lion. I was watching, again, one of those water buffalo things and the lions, and one of the lions had this little water buffalo in its mouth, and I'm thinking it's toast, but the mom never gave up. Matter of fact, the mom got the lion up underneath its belly with its horn and threw it up in the air, and the thing went running off. And say, I don't know if that baby ended up living, but it was alive at that moment. Never gave up, never surrendered. And again, even against a superior adversary. Just think of David when he went down into that valley. 
There's Goliath, and all the armies of Israel are afraid of this one man. But David understands that I serve a powerful God. And I would imagine David was of the mindset, this man has no right to curse God. He has cursed God, and so God is going to bring him to his knees one way or another. And guess what? Just maybe, maybe he'll use me. And so David went down into that valley, and David probably was of the mindset, I'm either going to prevail, and he's going to lose his head, or I'm going to be defeated, and I'll lose my head. Blessed be the will of the Lord. And he went down there, and he, this young shepherd boy with very humble means was able to do great things for the Lord. Why? Because he was diligent. He went down, and he was consistent, and he was in, consistent really in faith, and he was able to slay giants. The only way you can slay the giants in your life is to be consistent in your faith. Be people of prayer, but also consistent in the study of God's word. We need to consistently study God's word because, again, you know, I, I read, I've read the Bible through devotionally in my one-year Bible reading every year. Um, November 3rd of 2001 is when I started reading it, uh, you know, using the one-year Bible, and I've read it every single year. And when the year's up, guess what I do? I go back through again. Got to be consistent in it. And guess what? Every year I see something new or I see something different because I'm in a new or different place in my life or God's doing something new or different in my life. And we see the word of God in different perspectives and you see how living and powerful it is. And if we truly believe that this is the word of the living God, ought we not to be immersed into it? Ought we not to be faithful in it? Ought we not to be consistent in it? Be people who are consistent in prayer, consistent in word, and you'll see great things happen. The apostles we saw previous back in Acts chapter 6 weren't able to be as consistent as they wanted because there was some other things that needed to be done in the church and they were having a hard time finding the time to do it, so they raised up other people to do it. And when they did, what happened? The word of God spread and people getting saved increased. And so we must be consistent in this and which is able to change the direction of all humanity. 1 Timothy 4.16 says, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. And then fifthly, a person who possesses God's logo of love must be innocent, diligent, prudent, consistent, and definitely not arrogant. Verses 33 through 35, I had coveted no one's silver, gold, or apparel. He's saying, you've seen the manner of life in which I have lived amongst you. You've seen what my priority in this great work of ministry was. It wasn't monetary. It wasn't for conveniences. It was simply for the purpose of preaching God's word. He says in verse 34, Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And the apostle Paul, he had a trade and his trade was tent making. And he was diligent about that. And he would come into town and he would apply his trade for the purpose of supporting himself. And so you see that Paul was a very humble man. He could have, and he was entitled to make demands from the people that they would support him. He's even encouraged people to support those who preach the word. But Paul didn't want to do anything that may have been a disqualification in ministry or close somebody's ears or hearts to the gospel. So just as Jesus was here in order to serve us, we are to present ourselves for the service of others. And the only way, I'm going to talk about this in our leadership meeting today, a little bit of a commercial here. We have a leadership meeting here today, high school room at 4.30. But we'll talk about that in Rome, uh, John chapter 13 in the washing of the feet. To serve somebody is, well, who does the service? It's the slave. It's to be that servant to be that servant to that person so that a change would come about. Jesus did it on the cross and change came about through all of humanity. What influence are we able to have individually? We don't know. Matter of fact, as the man used to say, the possibilities are endless. Moving on from 14 to 15. 
a church that acts like acts does not compromise. Moving over to the next chapter, verses 17 through 24, and when, this is Paul speaking again, and well, actually it's Luke speaking, speaking as he's traveling with with, uh, the Apostle Paul. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. James. James is not the Apostle James. He's dead at this time. James is the Lord's half-brother, and so this is James that had written the epistle of James. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done amongst the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are amongst the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. You would say, Paul's not going to do that. Paul's been speaking of keeping the law to be right in the sight of God and he's definitely not going to be do it because what does Paul, Paul care about being right in the sight of man? And that's what James is concerned about and I guess you can make an argument to validate James's position. Now, keep in mind, they're in Jerusalem at this time. So they're in the midst of the Jews, and as they are, they're concerned because, well, we're Jews. If we're not keeping the law, that's going to turn people's heart. They're even going to come up against us. But what about the responsibility that we have before the Lord? If you keep dear the things of the Lord in your heart, God will keep you dear to his heart. He'll protect you. But here we have a little bit of a compromise, even so much that it seems to have extended to the Apostle Paul. And so I want you to consider this point before we get into the story that relates to our lives. And I've heard this said so many times, and I've thought this through in my mind as well. What does it mean to be in God's perfect will? What does it mean to be in God's permissive will? I had somebody tell me that, well, you know, it didn't work out. I guess I wasn't in God's perfect will, but I really believe that I was in God's permissive will. Well, to be in God's perfect will is to live your life in submission to the sovereignty of the Lord, is to be open to his leading and his direction and have a desire to be well-pleasing to him, excuse me, well-pleasing to him in all areas of your life. This is to know to the best of your ability what he desires of you and then to move forward in faith, spending your life fulfilling that ministry. It's been said, a successful man is one who finds out what God wants him to accomplish with his life and then fulfills it. The true measure of a man's success is not his social status or bank account or his influence and fame, it is simply doing what God wants him to do. That would be the perfect will of God. That'd be what we pray about and seek to do and, and, and want to do. And so, not sure that we're always in the perfect will of God, but God will lead us in the direction that is his will when necessary. What about his permissive will? To even think that God has a permissive will is to not know or understand the nature of God. The best description I can give you of God's permissive will is is sin that he does not instantly condemn you for. To say that I'm going to go according to God's permissive will is in actuality saying, I'm not going according to God's will, I'm going according to my own will. Nowhere in the Bible are we offered, behind, offered what is behind doors number one, doors number two, or doors number three. I think only older people will understand what I'm saying in that, but you just don't have a choice. God's perfect will for Israel, that he would be king. God's permissive will for Israel was the sin that they committed when they rejected God and made a king for themselves. God said in 1 Samuel 8.18, And you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. And so that's God's permissive will. That was sin. That was sin that, again, God did not instantly condemn them for, but they did suffer the repercussions of it. 
They did suffer because of it. Do you want to be in God's perfect will? Well, I'm not sure. You know, he, kind of, he wants me to go to Africa. I don't want to go to Africa. I'm going to stay here in California. And since I've been in California a couple weeks, he hasn't killed me, so this must be his permissive will. You were going to be better off. You were going to find more peace and contentment in your life in Africa than you could ever find in California. I mean, assuming this is what God has called you to do. And you have chosen your will above the will of the Lord. And so again, it all boils down to God's perfect will is his actual will. God's permissive will is my will that I want to attach onto God. And it just doesn't work that way. So, What's going on with the Apostle Paul now as he has entered into Jerusalem? He's met with the mother church that is in Jerusalem. He's met with the leader of the church, which is James. And it says in verse 1, Now it came to pass that we, when we had departed from them. So again, he had that meeting with those elders that he was at. When it says departed, the ideas, he tore himself away from them. Why would he do that? Well, because Paul was on a mission, and we see that mission statement in the book of Romans, chapter 15, verses 25 through 28, when it says, But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia, this would be the area of Greece, to make a certain contribution for the poor amongst the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed that they are their debtors, for if the Gentiles have been partaker of their spiritual things, their duty is to also minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. So what Paul was doing, there was famine in Jerusalem at that time in that area. Matter of fact, it was even worse for the church because people were getting saved, but they were being rejected by society. So let's just say I had a tent-making business in Jerusalem. I, I hear you're one of those people of the way. That's what they called Christianity today. I'm not doing business with you. I'm going to go do business with Saul over here. And so they would reject these people, and so they would be hurting. Women would get saved, and their husbands would write them certificate of divorces, and they would be left very vulnerable during that time. And, and so the church was suffering because of those things, plus you add on top of it the economic downturn that occurred at that point because of the drought, so they're having a really hard time. And so Paul, as he's going about southern Europe, Turkey, and so on and so forth, he's preaching at these churches and he's saying, hey, you received the gospel from that church. Because that church had a heart to reach out, you received of the gospel and you became born again. And just as you receive that spiritual from them, you should be helping them physically as well. Now, as you were suffering in the flesh, now they're suffering as well, and you have this opportunity to give back. And they responded. And so what Paul was doing, part of what he was doing as he was leaving, what we saw in Acts chapter 20, he's arrived now in Jerusalem, and he has brought this offering for these people who are hurting. Now, I have no doubt that the collection for Jerusalem was God's will, but let's consider, was it really God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem? Did God actually have a lot more? He, we see here that he wanted Paul to go to Spain. Some people argue that he eventually did make it to Spain, but the Bible doesn't tell us that. Look down at verse 4 in Acts chapter 21. It says, and finding disciples, we stayed, we stayed there, as he's on his journey now from Asia into Jerusalem, and finding disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. By the Holy Spirit, if you notice Spirit there, we'll see another instance of this, but here in this place, Spirit is capitalized, speaking of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit spoke to these people and told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And so I have to believe that God does not want him to go to Jerusalem. But this isn't the first time that the Apostle Paul has heard this message. Look previously in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 23, he says, And see now, I go bound in the Spirit. But when it says Spirit there, that's small s Spirit. That means his personality. That means it's his desire. I go now bound in my desires to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen there, except the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. And so Paul, 
he, I'm sure he has this desire to be in God's perfect will, but has he now moved into God's permissive will, which is where God would not want any of us? He says, I go bound in my spirit. I have this passion to go. But the Holy Spirit says there's change that awaits you. And then even later on, as he's getting closer, they told Paul through the Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, not to go to Jerusalem. When it says every city, it's probably about 10 cities minimum, best we can biblically tell, that has told him what awaits him. And so God is making this well known to the Apostle Paul what is going to happen if he does go. The only reason that God would continue to tell somebody something is because they continue to go against God's will. So it's important to note that this is not the voice of a compassionate friend that doesn't want him to go and suffer these things, but this is God. This is the Holy Spirit telling him not to go. How many times does the Holy Spirit warn us and keep warning us when trouble is about to come? How about the times in your lives when you closed your ear to the Spirit, when you knew the Spirit was telling you something about a person, event, a situation, or whatever it might be, but you kept going contrary to that and it didn't end very well? So the compromise. Well, these men had taken a vow of the Nazarene, and part of the offering that they were to make, and Paul was validating as he was with them, was a sin offering. Now, in the book of Galatians, that epistle was penned by the apostle Paul and is dedicated to show all believers that salvation is an inner work of God. It's not this outer work of keeping the law, but an inner work of God. In Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Paul was coming up against these people that wanted to attach elements of Judaism into Christianity. But that's exactly what Paul's doing here. Just think if you're a Gentile and you're with Paul or observing Paul during this time and he has been told to go in and make a sacrifice. If I'm a Gentile, I can't do that. I'm not allowed to enter in and to make the sacrifice. And this being the case, then how can I truly be right with Paul? And then you start looking at Paul being righter than you with God and all of the, and then you get into this mess that had been going on in Israel for thousands and thousands of years. Paul said in Galatians 5.1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty or the freedom that you have from keeping the law by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with this yoke of bondage. But that's exactly what Paul's doing. Again, verse 26 in Acts chapter 21, Then Paul took them in, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. And as I stated before, this is a sin offering. And we find nowhere in the Bible, in the New Testament, that a Christian should practice any rite of purification and definitely not make a sacrifice. A sin offering is because we're sinners. What kind of offering do we make? 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are to make that offering of repentance. We are to repent of our sins, and as we repent of our sins, God forgives. This offering, the sin offering that Paul's about to make, is an animal sacrifice. The worshiper would confess his sin over the head of the animal. He would lay his hands on the animal, symbolically passing his sin from himself onto the animal. The animal then would be killed as a substitutionary sacrifice for that particular person's individual sin. In God's perfect will, we walk and witness in the glory of the grace of God having that opportunity to repent and to move on. In God's permissive will, well, what we're seeing here is there's compromise that brings capitulation that results in nothing but confusion. So what does God do? God does enter into the situation. Paul's about 
to make that sacrifice. Then verse 27, now when the seven days were almost uh, ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. There's that apostle Paul. We hear that he's bringing Gentiles in here. Paul's going to make a sacrifice. But what did God do? He allowed them to lay hands on him. And symbolically, it was God laying hands on him. It was God holding him back. What's the big deal with it all? Well, to go back, it's going to hinder everything we've said. Because if Paul makes that sacrifice, then you need to go to the book of Romans and tear the book of Romans out of your Bible. Just as I stated, if Paul makes the sacrifice, then you need to tear the book of, of, of Galatians out of your Bible. It, it discounts everything that he has said. It's all about the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because once you enter into that sacrifice, instead of laying hands on him, it's through belief. But what is he? He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it's what Paul talked about in the book of Romans, the doctrine of justification. Because once we become born-again believers, God sees us just as if we have never sinned. And so why in the world would you want to make a sacrifice? Well, he was just kind of doing it to fit in. Well, yeah, every compromise we've ever done, usually that's the motivation to fit in. God doesn't want us to fit in. He doesn't want Paul to fit into the Jewish society. He wants him to stand above and beyond that. He doesn't want us to fit into our society. He wants us to stand apart from our society. And the difference is Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's all about the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ and, and what he has done for me, what he has done for you. Jesus came, he paid the price for my sin upon that cross. And the reason I know he paid the price for my sin is because he died, because sin leads to death. But he didn't stay dead, he came alive again. How did, could he become alive again? Obviously through the power of God, but also the picture is because he overcame sin. If you overcome sin, then you overcome death. And he came alive again. And now I have this great hope within me that he was the first fruits, the first of many more to come, of which I am one of them. And that one day I'm going to die because sin still has its effects upon me, although God chooses to see myself, see me, just as if I've never sinned. But one day I'm going to die, but guess what? I am going to overcome, or at least Christ is going to overcome my sin, and I'll know that because I become alive again. So though we die, we will live, and we will live for all eternity. That's why Jesus has gone to pay a price, I'm sorry, prepare a place, for us. He did pay a price, but prepare a place for us. And Lord, just keep us. Keep us from our will, not our will, but your will be done. Lord, we need to be learners. Kids need to go to school. We need to do all of these things, but may we keep these things in proper biblical perspective. Apostle Paul didn't, but God kept him. We serve such a gracious God. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your graciousness. And I just pray, Father, that we would be a people who are found faithful, Lord, to all you have called us to do. That, Lord, we would not be a people who compromise, but we would not be concerned about what other people think. And especially in this environment that we live in today that is completely contrary to your word, I pray, Father, against that black backdrop that we would shine very brightly. And so, Father, I just lift up this day and we just thank you for this instruction that you have given us. I pray, Father, that we would embrace these things. I pray, Lord, for myself, if I've added anything contrary to you, that you would cause that to fall upon deaf ears. But we do pray for your message, God, that that would fill our hearts. And so, Lord, once again, just go before us in this day. I pray for those who've come out and those who are watching online that you would bless them. Pray that you would use them in good and glorious ways, Father. May we truly be a church that acts like acts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please?